good to see you. Welcome. Guys, thanks for joining us on a day where I think pretty much everyone would rather be at the beach, right? It feels like that kind of day. Um, uh, we are carrying on this series. We've called it Life Support. And it was this kind of play on words around looking around, does our faith need life support? Or are we already on that kind of, or like on a life support machine with our faith? If you have um, a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 22. If you don't know where that is, don't worry. It's like um, kind of three quarters of the way through the Bible. It's one of the biographies of Jesus. Um, And we've got kind of this wonderful story. It's one of the stories, actually, a few stories that's mentioned in all of the kind of accounts of Jesus. And if you don't have it, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen in just a minute. We can read it out. So verse 7, and it says, says this. Let me just make sure I'm in the right place. Here we go. Verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found the things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again until the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which one of them would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You're those who stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on the throne, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned your back, strengthen your brothers. Be replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. 
Lord God, this is your word. It's your word to us. We believe that and we ask, would you open your heart to us through it this morning? Lord, I pray that you would shape us in your image for the work that you're doing. Lord, whether we have been following you for years and years or whether we are unsure or whether we're somewhere in between, Lord, I ask that you would reveal your heart to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is one of the few stories that we find all across the Gospels and uh, it's become known as kind of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to look at this today. In this series we've looked at kind of What does radical discipleship or like following after Jesus look like or radical engagement with the world or radical followership? But today I want to look at potentially the most controversial of all the practices of Jesus, that of radical community. I really like um, this idea. Can we go to the next slide? Nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. I was going to begin by quoting statistics about the breakdown of community, the reality of loneliness and isolation. But we no longer need them because we feel them. We feel them acutely in our moment and in our time. David Jansen said this, the 20th century will be remembered as an age of wondrous creativity when we voluntarily shattered our lives into distant and dissonant fragments. Our industries learned how to assemble atomic bombs, airplanes, iPads, and the genetic codes of life itself. In the same era that society disassembled the ancient overlap of family, food, faith, and the field of work, we reached for the stars as we withered our roots, inhabited space but lost any sense of place. In short, we are a people longing and yearning for community, but have lost the idea of how to do it. And as we begin to look at what community is, the kind of community that Jesus had in mind, I think the easiest place to start with is what community isn't. And once we begin to take away some of the things that community isn't, once we begin to take some of these things out of the frame, we'll be able to see the picture of what community is more clearly. We've had our vision of community so shaped by media, marketing, and human greed that it's sometimes really tricky to see what it's about. So here are some of the myths, and we see all these myths appear in this account today, but here are some of the myths of what community is. Firstly, that community is at our convenience. We believe that community is at our convenience. Like, I'm just going to kind of be a part of this when it it suits me and, and pick this up how I want. Or secondly this, that community is those who think like us. If any of you live with a family, you'll know that not to be true. Wilbur, you need to put your clothes on because we need to leave the house. Nope. He does not think like that. Community is those who think like us is a myth. Thirdly, third myth. Community can be opted in and out of. We think that in not letting our yes be yes or being fickle and pulling out of things last minute gives us freedom to choose, but it doesn't. It makes us chained to the false realities of the world. And we're scared that people might do the same to us. Next is this, the myth that community will place no demands on me. 
We kind of misunderstand. If it's placing demands on us, somehow this can't be authentic community. I was talking to someone recently who said, oh, my community is online. And I love the fact that I can just kind of close it and walk away from it. I said, that's not community. It doesn't place enough demands on you. Next myth is this, that community will always make you feel good. It doesn't. It won't. It's not meant to. I look around this room and I think some of the closest people um, I have in the entire world are in this room. I think of my wife and my kids are out there. But I also think of the other people who walked with me, like Steve and Andrew. We've walked together for a long time. And um, I don't want to mention any names in case you know who Andrew is. But um, what, some of our community has been forged through times when it didn't feel good. And we've walked through tough moments. Even on a personal front, I remember when I was starting out kind of preaching and pastoring, Andrew would kind of make a beeline for me straight after I'd done my sermon and say, I just want to tell you what you did wrong. Are you kidding? (laughs) Community doesn't always make us feel good. My children are really young at the moment, so I know this will change, but if you ask my kids who their best friend is, they'll say Papa. Actually, no, they'll say Mama. But it's the same same thing applies. When we call them out on their behavior, when we challenge them to a higher standard, when we insist don't hit or eat each other, they don't feel good, but they love us, and they want us, and they hold us. If we chase feeling good, we may find it, but we're unlikely to feel loved. Love requires a vulnerability that feeling good doesn't express. The vulnerability of of messing up and still being wanted of failing and still having a home, of preaching a bad sermon every Sunday and someone coming and putting his arm around you and saying, I love you. Next is this, community is made up, the myth is that community is made up of loose, fickle, simple interactions, notifications and likes. We have traded the simplicity, uh, the complexity of community for the simplicity of a like count. How many disinterested, unintentional, and light touches can I get to make me feel like I'm in community? And we see these as more valuable than three close people. Do you ever go out to dinner and wonder why people bothered going out for dinner? You look at them and everyone's on their phone. I actually went over to a group, I don't know why I do this, but I went over to a group of people recently. They were out for dinner and they were all sat on their phone. And I walked up to them and I said, did you guys all get the wrong invite? Because you look like you're meant to be with other people. And they said to me, what? Ah. It looks like you'd rather be someplace else. Someone once said, we've become, uh, we've become the generation obsessed with the people we're not with. Final myth is this community is made of mountaintop moments, those moments where everything's perfect, everyone's laughing and joking and agreeing, and there's never a crossword. Here's the thing. Community is often instigated in those moments. We love those moments. But if you know anything about being on mountains, there's a lot of valley in between. Community has grown and fostered in the valleys, but we, we often want to isolate it to just being in mountaintop moments. If you look at the Jesus' disciples, their community was forged around fun stuff, for sure, but also a lot of tough stuff. Persecution, disagreements, sadness, and confusion, and more. And we see this cropping up in this story. And in the midst of this, Jesus models community. 
John Tyson says this, we live in a relational moment where the needs of the individual have completely eclipsed the concerns of a larger community. The choice architecture of our entire lives exists to facilitate individualism, and rather than articulating an alternative vision, the church has embraced this value. We speak primarily of a personal relationship with God as the fundamental goal of faith. There's nothing wrong with personal faith, but the love that Jesus speaks of is fundamentally other-oriented and generally communal. If the goal of church is self, we will not fulfill Jesus' command that we be known as a people of love. So what are the lost traits of authentic community? If those are the myths, what are the lost traits? Have you noticed how profound the community is that Jesus shapes? He creates this, this community that would go on to establish the global church, and change the world. And yet it is nothing like community that we would describe. We definitely have community in our time, but it doesn't look like this one. There's so much we could say about what community is or isn't, but I simply want to point out the things that we see in this text today because I think it's different and stuff we often miss. I think firstly this, community defies our human sensibilities of love and of grace. These disciples are not behaving well. Don't don't gloss over the fact that these disciples are being naughty. Jesus says in the middle of this, one of you is going to betray me. And then they begin, I love this, they begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest. They're sat with Jesus and they're wondering who's going to be the greatest. And in that moment, Jesus, he doesn't offer um, kind of a crucial conversation. Or he doesn't say, let's sit down and work this through. Or he doesn't even offer being stern with them, but he washes their feet. Check out John 13, the same narrative in a different way. And he shares a meal with them. Community defies our sensibilities of love and grace. Secondly, this, it is messy and we are shaped in the mess. Peter is shaped by this rooster, by the moment of that in an incredible way. And despite all of this mess going on, what does Jesus do? He longs for it. Jesus says, I have longed to have this meal. Don't be under any illusions. Jesus knew what was coming. And he knew what a ragtag bunch they were. And Jesus longs for it. Community is forged in the fire and in the mess. Next is this. Community models forgiveness. I was, I was talking to some people this week and said the thing that is missing out of all the positive justice movements of the age is forgiveness. We live in an age that is anti-forgiveness. In fact, we see it as a sign of weakness. We'd much rather, be, we'd much rather say, these people have said this, so we must vilify them. They must never be allowed to, to kind of go back to where they were or do what they were doing. Have you seen the witch hunts that we have over comments people make? Jesus has already recognized and called out their bad behavior and draws them in. He doesn't make it okay. He doesn't say that's all okay, but he draws them in. He chooses to forgive. Next is this community values consistency over compliancy. We are looking generally in our communities for compliant people. Don't be messy. Don't push the boundaries too far. Take a cup of coffee with all minds, but don't, don't take two. Like, who do you think you are? 
Don't go too far. Keep within this box. And if things go wrong, or we disagree, or we mess up, that's the end. But we must strive to continue to meet, and to forgive, and to work once again. In a moment that we live in where where we leave community so easily, we move on and we look for other forms of community almost as easily as we change clothes, we must recognize that something bigger than the feelings we have in a moment are going on. We can't just chase after compliant people who will never kind of offend any of our sensibilities. I love this. I've, I've said it before, but let me say it again. The Benedictine communities take several vows um, of chastity, of poverty, but the one I love is the vow of stability. Listen to this. We vow to remain all of our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. What would our world look like if we took that vow? If we said, this is who we're going to be as a community, and instead of looking for someplace else because it's an illusion, because we're like, yeah, yeah, actually, this community is, they offended me. They didn't like my shirt. They didn't like how I looked or what I said. And we walk off. Next is this. Authentic community moves beyond its own self-righteous sense of decency. We must be prepared to get over ourselves to do real community. Some of us are too preoccupied with our own sense of rightness. And by some of us, I often mean me, just so you know. But like, so we're so preoccupied with our own sense of rightness, our own sense of superiority, and our own pride about who should be at our table. At this table alone, Jesus had the person who would betray him to death, a freedom fighter, in other words, terrorist, someone who is about to cut off someone's ear, and someone who betrayed his own countrymen to make money as a conspirator to the Roman authorities. And this is who he chooses to have his most intimate meal with. Yet we don't. We don't want that. We don't eat with them. We scarcely greet them. And when given the opportunity, we cut them out. If people are offended by the company you keep, bear in mind you are in the company of Jesus. Look at him. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. And I think finally, this is, as I look at this story, I think it's fascinating. Authentic Christian community is not always super spiritual. Some of us think our Christian community must, like, oh, we can't meet unless we do a Bible study. Like, I'm not against Bible studies. I love Bible studies. I'm the geek who's into Bible studies. But we have this idea that Christian community is not all it's meant to be unless it's super spiritual. We have, a, we have a couple of millennia of loving, celebrating communion, and we've done it in a variety of ways. But in the last few hundred years, we've exclusively focused on the spiritual and the sacred, solemn aspects of it. But we miss out that this was ultimately a feast with friends around a table, kicking back, relaxing together. When Jesus says, 
when you take bread and wine to remember, uh, remember me, this was not an invitation to begin taking bread and wine. It was a recognition that this is what you do every day. So when you do this thing that you do every day, remember me. Authentic Christian community is not scared of having Jesus in all the places at all the times. In this meal, Jesus is in the praying and the party, the washing of feet and the reclining. If we are worried about inviting Jesus into something, there are only two options. Either we shouldn't be doing it and we know it, or we have a culturally developed sense of the sacred and the secular. So we kind of have Jesus bits and non-Jesus bits. But this is not the way of Jesus. He wants to be in life, in all moments and seasons and things. And this isn't his demand to us. This is his promise to us. So as we come into land, let's get, let's get a bit more real with this. We start with some of the myths, but here, here's some of the realities. We need community more than we could ever know. Even if, like me, you're an introvert. Even Jesus needed it. So if Jesus needs community, we need it. He calls the disciples to be with him later in Gethsemane as he prays. He said, I've longed for this meal. Secondly, this is the very heart of God. This is a communal God bringing people into community. If you read through the New Testament, there is no sense in scriptures of being saved into isolation. It's just not a thing. Community costs us more than we could ever know, but it's a cost that ultimately saves us. We are in a deep need of being shaped and formed, and yet we isolate ourselves, so we're formed by the kind of choice furniture of our time. Social media. TV shows, casual acquaintances. If we allow ourselves to pick and to choose community, to drop and pick people where we want, and protect ourselves from people who are different or think differently, the only conclusion we can draw is not that we do community, but that we are selfishly independent. We can't love God unless we're in community. And I guess this, is, this, this struck me as well. Do you remember that? I think it was Theodore Roosevelt who said, comparison robs us of joy. Have you seen what these people are chasing after? Position, power, certainty. I went along to, um, they had this, a swimming demonstration at our kids' school this week, and I went along to see Corey, and they were doing this swimming demonstration. And uh, they, they started by saying, this is, the, um, this is the swing for the advanced ones in the year group. So well done for having your kids here. Straight away, I'm like, I'm going to message other parents and go, well, I didn't see you at the advanced swimming group. <laughs> but here's the thing. Kids do not do that. I was watching these kids, and there are some kids who can do things well, some kids who can't do things well, but they cheer for one another. They don't look at the other kids and go, they're better than me at that. They go, you did that. Come on. And they're so excited. They celebrate one another's achievements rather than worrying about what they can't do or don't have. The disciples were worrying about what they had or didn't have. Who would be the better one? And it would rob them. 
you know, as we close, I think there's some things we can grab from this story about how we do community. Firstly, this, intentionality. In all of the accounts of these stories, they begin by saying, this is how we're going to prepare for the feast. We need to be intentional, thinking through how we're going to do this. And this is this, in reclining. It's this beautiful word where it says they recline. So in, in the Greek, it literally means to lie on your side and eat food. I'm so in for that. We need to recline more in community. If you come around to our house for dinner and just start lying down, it's just biblical, guys, okay? <laughs> Thirdly, this, by sharing a meal, doing life around a table. We heard it earlier, Faith spoke on this at the end of last year, but it's this idea that we would choose to do life around a table. It forces us to do life at a different pace, in a different way, with a different agenda. So with a friend of mine this week, he said he'd spent a week in meetings where the agenda was set for every moment of the day and they got nothing done. And the week before, they'd climbed Mount Everest together as a team. Not Mount Everest, Mount Kenya. They said they'd done some incredible stuff as they'd walked up a mountain and talked together. Next is this, and the church does this badly. We need to chase after fun. There needs to be some fun in the house. I look at some of you and think, wow, I'm not sure you're saved. <laughs> you look a bit sad to me. I remember when we started in the early days, and we used to, we used to do this um, in the evening. We only had an evening service before we'd throw a party for our kids. And they said, I find it weird that you guys do parties in your church. I said, well, Jesus liked parties, so we want to do that as well. But some of us become so solemn, we miss this moment. Jesus is having a feast and not a meeting. We must keep doing it as well. Community is not an event, it is a process. It's something we keep going through and keep doing. When you do this, remember me. And the implication being you do it a lot. We must keep doing it. We must keep preferring our love onto one another in the midst of naughtiness. Jesus washes the feet and he shares a meal. But when people are naughty in our communities, we want to push them away. We don't want to serve them. We want to make sure they're not really part of what's going on. And I don't just mean here, I mean in our lives. And that's not to say that there aren't corrections needed. But we've got to offer love to one another. And then we put Jesus at the centre. Have you noticed this supper revolves around the king? How are we, what are we doing revolving around the king? Douglas Jones says this is a stunning observation. Followers of the Sermon on the Mount have long noted how anti-individualistic it is. People who stumble or are dragged away of the cross often attempt to live this sermon on their own. They might repudiate Mammon and begin trying to deliver the homeless. They might give up their savings and live simply by themselves. They might refuse violence and give more charity to the poor. But in a very important way, this misses Christ's teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is not a code for individual behavior. It's given to the church. And the church has to take the lead in living it in community. People who try it on their own quickly burn out. It is made to crush the individual, but to give life to the church. One person cannot live the life of the Trinity. The church is the Trinity on earth, and all the gifts and body parts are crucial to sustaining the way of the cross. 
in a world that is marginalized by hatred towards others, where people are lonely and isolated, and where individualism is prized. If we begin to do any of this stuff, it will be radical in our moment. Community is not a way of Jesus. It is the way of Jesus. An authentic community will bring us close to him. It allows our weaknesses and failings to be seen as what they are. Not always good, but not fatal either. You know, on my own, I am way more likely to either dismiss my faults as unimportant or see them as things that would isolate me from the kingdom of the heavens. Community doesn't allow this. As I was just finishing up these notes, I put this. I want you to know that you're loved. I want you to know that you're loved by this community. We spoke this week as a team, and I said the thing I love most about the work of Ajar, and you can find out more about the work we do in prisons, was that their bar for entry is low. So many organizations have higher requirements, like in the legal aid sector which they're in, you know, to get legal care and help, you have to meet these standards, you have to go through this criteria. With a jar, it's like, are you a warm body in need of help? Then we're in. You ended up back in prison? Great, we're in again. Like, grace is not a moment, it's a lifestyle. And it's the same in church. You are so loved by God, by his people. I don't know how you came in this morning. Some weeks I, you know, I, I struggle with who I am and who I'm becoming before God, but I turn up to a community of people who love me. And that's our responsibility to one another is to offer that out. Last week, for those of you who weren't here in the evening, you missed out on a treat, but probably my favorite thing of the whole evening is when we stood and we were facing one another, singing, and we sang the blessing song. And so we are singing this and like literally looking at other people and just saying, we just bless. This is God's blessing for you. This is God's word for you. We want to pour out his love for you. And it's a moment where the church were looking around at one another, just praying God's words and singing it over one another. You are loved. And this table that we're creating here has a place card with your name on it. Guys, will you stand with me? <clears throat> I want us to take some time just to respond and, and sing and, and worship. But before that, I want us to do a perhaps a, a communal act. We would just kind of just take a moment just to pray over one another. Actually, Daniel, should we, should we sing that song? Is that okay? Should we sing the blessing? Is that okay? Let's do that. So guys, we're just going to take... Daniel's going to lead us through the song. If you don't know the words, just make it up. It's fine. But we'll, we're just going to go for this. And what we're going to do is we're just going to sing the song over one another. And this is God's words over one another. And we're going to do something that makes everyone feel really uncomfortable in church. We're going to turn around and just look at people and say these words to, you, to each other. Because it's important. You know, in community, we can't, we can't avoid the good stuff that goes up. On our own, we, can, we can't expose ourselves on our own. But we also can't encourage ourselves on our own. 
And God's words encourage us. And I think as a community, we just need to encourage one another. My sense coming in this morning was that the people walking in here just didn't feel loved by themselves, by community, or by God. I just want to make sure that people don't walk away thinking that that is, is true. So Daniel, just, we just lead us. And as we sing these words, why don't we just um, say them over one another? Hey, everybody, so nice to see you. So glad you're here.